he looks out the window and there's this golf course. And goes, wow, isn't that beautiful golf course? He says, what are the tea fees on? This is your reward in heaven. Okay, this is pretty good. And so they go to the clubhouse and they have this lavish buffet lunch, you know, with seafood and salads and free-flowing beverages. And how much is... No, don't ask about the cost. This, this is your reward in heaven. And they look at the food and the wife goes, oh, where's the low-fat, low-cholesterol foods, you know? The decaf coffee and... and oh, Peter goes, oh, you can eat and drink as much as you like. You, you'll never get fat or sick. This is, this is heaven. I say, oh, there's no gym to work out at? Oh, only if you want to. No testing my sugar or blood pressure? Never again. The old man glared at his wife. He goes, You and your stupid brand muffins, we could have been here 30 years ago. <laughs> Today we're looking at rewards in heaven. Uh, and while I'm sure they're nothing like the joke, uh, we do see that Jesus promises them. But there is a twist. Let me remind you where we're up to. Jesus had just been speaking with this rich young man. He wanted to know what he must do to have eternal life. He claimed to have kept all the commandments, and so Jesus tested his heart. He said, go and sell all you have, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. The young man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And then Jesus made the comment that it is very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, which is impossible. See, the disciples thought that riches were a sign of God's favor when someone did good, and so they're going, huh? well, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. No one can save themselves, but God can save anyone. That's a miracle that only he can perform. Because salvation has to be a free gift. Can't be earned, can't be deserved, can only be received humbly and dependently. It's a gift of grace. And grace is God's kindness to us, his generosity, his favor that we don't deserve. And that's where we were up to in the book of Matthew. But... but this week, the main issue isn't the issue of salvation, although we'll, we'll touch on it, but the issue of rewards. How will God reward those who are in the kingdom? Will God take into account all our work and sacrifice? Are there rewards for God's servants in the kingdom? That's the question that Peter asked Jesus at the end of this incident of the, of the rich young man. See, the rich young man couldn't part with his riches to follow Jesus. But Peter and the other disciples, they had Peter had left his home, his family still had a home, but, but he wasn't there. And so had his brother Andrew. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they left their fishing nets to follow Jesus. And then there was Matthew himself, who had left his lucrative tax collecting to, to follow him. Not to mention the other disciples. What would they have to show for all they'd done? Verse 27, Peter asks, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Will we have treasure in heaven? Well, there are two principles that Jesus gives here in answer to that question. 
First of all, Jesus says, yes. God will reward those who serve him. Their sacrifice will be repaid. And he makes them some terrific promises. At verse 28, he says that his disciples will be given positions of leadership. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. You will be part of the ruling team. Like the judges of the Old Testament, you, you'll be in charge of God's people, governing God's people. You, twelve disciples, you'll be rewarded for giving up everything and following me. But those rewards aren't just in terms of position. There will be abundant compensation for, for the losses of this life. Verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. If we make sacrifices to follow Jesus, he will definitely make it up to us. Somehow or other, he will make sure that we do not miss out in the end. We can count on that. But best of all, those who leave everything to follow Jesus inherit eternal life. Eternal life was what the young man wanted and he couldn't get it because following Jesus meant sacrificing his wealth. I don't know what it's taking for you to follow Jesus, but sacrificing anything whatever it is for eternal life is worth it whatever the price is having eternal life with God that alone makes it worth it but on top of that Jesus says he will compensate not only compensate you overcompensate you hundredfold for whatever sacrifices you make for him it's a pretty great promise isn't it God will reward those who serve him However, on the other hand, Jesus says to expect surprises on the last day. Verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, that's a surprise, isn't it? Some of the people that you expect to be way up there in the kingdom won't be. And some of the people you, you least expect to be great will be the greatest of all. Because God doesn't look on greatness the way we do. His system of rewards is not like ours. A great in the world is not necessarily great in the kingdom. Great in the eyes of the church institution is not necessarily great in the kingdom. Great in the eyes of other Christians is not necessarily great in the kingdom. A hundredfold reward is not meant to be taken as if you could you know, work out what you get in the kingdom by you know, calculating what you've lost and adding two zeros. Or your position in the kingdom is directly proportional to, to your work and sacrifice here. Many who are first will be last and the last first. It's a bit of a puzzling saying. And then Jesus says it again in verse 16 of chapter 20. So the last will be first and the first last. And in between the two times that he's saying this, he explains it by means of a parable. The kingdom of heaven... Jesus said, It's like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. That's what they did in those days when they needed extra hands on deck. They'd literally go to the job market and contract workers for the day. So this guy at 6 a.m. goes to the marketplace and negotiates to hire workers for the standard price of one denarius a day. 
That's a normal day's pay for a normal day's work. But then, about the third hour, in verse 3, which means 9am, he sees more workers standing idle in the marketplace, and he says to them in verse 4, You go to the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. No contract, no agreed wage, just trust me. I'll give you what's right. And they do. So they went to work. And he did this again at the sixth hour, twelve o'clock midday, and the ninth hour at three p.m. And at the eleventh hour, five p.m., he went out and found others still standing around. Now they weren't going to get work for the day, which probably means that they and their families will go hungry. And the landowner says, Are you standing here all day? Because no one hired us. He's okay, you go to the vineyard too. An hour later, Evening comes, six o'clock, it's knocking off time. So the vineyard owner tells the foreman to, to pay the workers. Start with the last one, they'll go backwards to the first. And the ones who were hired at the eleventh hour at five PM came and wow, each of them received one denarius. That was a full day's wages for one hour's work. And so naturally those who've been working longer thought they'd be getting more. Let's see, these guys get one denarius for an hour's work. Well, we've been working for 12 hours. 12 denarii. That's, that's 12 days' wages. But then when it was their turn, they got one denarius each. So immediately they got on the phone and called the Vineyard Workers' Union to compare about, complain about an unfair work, working practice. Now, they didn't have trade unions in those days, but it didn't stop them grumbling. Verse 12, they say, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat that's not fair we worked 12 hours not only that we worked in the hottest part of the day these guys work one hour in the cool part of the day and they get the same pay how can then he replied in verse 13 friend I am doing you no wrong didn't cheat you. By being generous to the late coming workers, I haven't wronged you. I have paid you a fair wage. He says in verse 13 again, Did you not agree with me for a denarius? That was the contract. That was the agreement. And I fulfilled it. I paid you in full and on time. I have given you justice. And so he says in verse 14, Take what belongs to you and go. The owner gave denarius to the early worker. That's what you're due, belongs to you, paid you the standard rate, just take it and leave. But what I do for the late workers, really that's got nothing to do with you. Verse 14, I, cho- I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. That is my wish. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? See, the owner's money was his, and his alone. He could do whatever he liked with it, as long as he fulfilled his commitments. If he wanted to give it to the last worker, that was his choice. If he wanted to use it to buy a ton of ice cream, that was his choice. And the early workers couldn't say anything. It was none of their business. He had met his obligation to the early workers... He had given them what they deserved. And if he wanted to pay the late workers more than what they deserved, 
So they took on the same pay as the earlier workers. That was completely up to him. If he wanted to be kind and open-handed with them, that's entirely his decision. No one was cheated. No one was shortchanged. And what he did with the late workers had nothing to do with the others. No one else had any right to speak about it. Or, as the landowner says in the end of verse 15, do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, is your eye bad because I am good? See, giving the full denarius, the late coming workers, is simply an example of generosity. The early workers looked on it as jealousy, envy, with an evil eye, because they did not share the owner's heart. Friends, God treats people individually. And he never wants us to compare ourselves with others. Never. What he gives you is between him and you. I cannot complain. What he gives me is between him and me. I cannot com- you cannot complain. But rest assured that God never treats anyone worse than they deserve in relation to him. He never gives anyone less. He is always just. He will always treat everyone properly, one-to-one with him, creator to creature. But he doesn't want us to compare ourselves with each other. Just relate to him. And that's how it works in every area of the Christian life. First and foremost in this passage, it relates to rewards. Because that's what Jesus was talking about initially when he told his disciples this parable. The fact that God rewards those who serve him doesn't mean that those who have served him the longest will get the best rewards. It doesn't necessarily mean that those who have done the most work will get the best rewards. It doesn't work that way. God will reward you for your labor. That's for sure. But there's no reason why he can't graciously give more to someone else. The same goes the other way around too. God may give you all kinds of rewards that you don't deserve, even if your labor was little. So it's not like you can earn your standing in heaven by what you do here. Now, God will be fair to you, never give you anything less than you deserve, but he reserves the right to be gracious to you, to give and reward you far above what you deserve. Even what Jesus said to Peter earlier was extravagant, wasn't it? He'll sacrifice me, don't worry, he'll repay you a hundredfold. By right, you repay or you give compensation. In the Old Testament, Job was compensated double. But hundredfold, that's, that's overabundant reward. Isn't that too generous? Well, the answer is God is gracious to his people. He's generous. He'll be gracious to you and he reserves the right to be gracious to others too. To give them more than they deserve. You know, and that's why... Well, who keep the disciples from, from pride? Now they couldn't look around and say, Hey, I'm doing well here. Made lots of sacrifices of Jesus. I'm going to be one of those top dogs in heaven. Well, we don't know that. In fact, Jesus taught us in Luke 17.10 to say, When we've done all we are commanded, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Because that's the reality of the situation. Whatever we do for God, we have done our duty. That's what we're meant to do. Our whole duty in life is to serve Him. 
So we really don't put God in our debt. He doesn't really owe us anything. And yet God in his generosity will still reward us abundantly for what we've done. And so the rewards we receive are rewards of grace. And God will give rewards as he pleases. Each one of us deals with God one on one. God will never be unjust to anyone. But he will be gracious to whom he wishes, how he wishes. That's his prerogative. And we must never compare ourselves to each other. Because many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now friends, we can't complain about that, can we? We can't complain about grace like those early workers. Because after all, we are beneficiaries of grace ourselves. For the same principle of grace applies to becoming a Christian in the first place. The Bible tells us that those who belong to Christ have been chosen by God to be saved. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 talks about the fact that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. That is purely a gift of grace. Sure, we're responsible for making a decision to follow Jesus, but in the end we would never choose him if he hadn't chosen us first. Now, did God choose us because we were better than other people? Or because we tried harder? We were more moral, more religious? Of course not. I don't know why God chose me. I'm not better than anyone else. But he did. He was generous and kind to me in a way that I don't deserve. I don't deserve the Son of God to have died for me to take away my sins. I don't deserve to have heard the gospel of his forgiveness. I don't deserve to have had the Spirit work in my heart to to give me faith to believe and submit to Jesus as Lord. I don't don't deserve the opportunity to serve Jesus with, with my heart and my life. I don't deserve a place in the new creation where death and mourning and crying and pain are gone and, and we'll be in perfect relationship with God and each other forever. And what I deserve is God's punishment for my sin. What I deserve is the wages of sin, death. I don't deserve to be saved. Yet I have been. Like those late workers, I am simply a recipient of grace. And if you belong to Jesus, then so are you. God's kindness to us doesn't mean he's unjust to anyone else. God will treat everyone justly. But justice demands that we be condemned. Now, there may be grades of punishment there are, as there are grades of reward, but, but without grace and without Christ, we, we would be doomed. That is the reward of justice. And yet, in addition to justice, God gives mercy to those who are in Christ. For those who have chosen, he pours out his favor, enables us to trust in Christ, forgives us our sins, gives us a place with him in glory, makes us his people. That's God's mercy. His generosity. And by the way, if all this talk about being chosen worries you because you don't know if you're chosen, well, don't worry. You just choose Jesus and you'll find that he's already chosen you. So God is just. He always deals with people justly on an individual basis. 
So if God punishes someone who hasn't heard the gospel, he wouldn't be punishing them for not hearing the gospel. That wouldn't be just, would it? He would be punishing them for the sins they've committed. He will deal justly with them. He always will. But he's not under obligation to extend grace to to anyone. He will be gracious. And he may be gracious, abundantly gracious. He may send someone to tell them the gospel. But he doesn't have to do that in order to be just. Because by definition, grace is over and above justice. It's a totally different category. Let's say I owe you a hundred ringgit. And uh, Charles also owes you a hundred ringgit. Now one day you say to me, now please pay me back my hundred ringgit. Well, I've got to pay, don't I? That's justice. I'm going to say instead of asking Charles to pay a hundred ringgit, you give him a gift of a thousand ringgit. That's grace. That's entirely between you and Charles. Nothing to do with me. I can't refuse to pay what I owe you on that basis. Can't demand the gift. Hey, why don't you give me a hundred thousand? No, that's... And it's like that with God's choosing. God is always just. He'll never treat anyone worse than we deserve. But we can't compare. God will treat everyone justly, just just you and God. And no one will be able to say to God on the last day, you've been unfair to me. No one. He'll always reward good and punish evil. The fact that all of us are evil means that justice demands our condemnation. Just like justice says I ought to pay Charles his hundred ringgit. No, ought to pay you the hundred ringgit. Yet for those whom God has chosen, for those whose trust is in Jesus and his death on the cross, there is something more than justice. God at his own cost, at the cost of the death of his son, treats us with grace. It's like he gives us that thousand. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We receive not justice, but mercy. And all we can do is say thank you with our lips and our lives. God is always just. Because he is gracious, we cannot compare ourselves with other people. The same thing, the same principle applies in the areas of gifting. Some of us are gifted in one area, others are gifted in others. Gifts we've received are God's gift for us to use in honor of him. We can't compare ourselves with others. Can't complain if God hasn't given us voices like Regina and Carol. Can't complain if God hasn't given us teaching gifts like Chris and Tim. Can't complain if God hasn't given us the same financial resources as others. That's each each thing's between us and God. And them and God. No comparing. None of us deserve what we've been given. We're, all of us are in the same boat. We mustn't look down on others who have been given different gifts and need to be thankful and faithful with what we've been given and use it for God's glory. We don't compare. Same principle applies to deathbed conversions. Some people put their faith in Christ when they're on their deathbed. Now, don't you do that, will you? Well, do it if you're on your deathbed, but don't put it off, will you? You never know when that will be. 
But there are people who genuinely put their faith in Christ on their deathbed. They cry out to God for mercy and God will save them. And many people have a problem with this. I often get asked by non-Christians, how can it be fair that someone who gets, lives, the li- lives the life the way they like and then repent on their deathbed and they still go to heaven? That's not fair. Now there's all kinds of points to make in answering that question. I mean, God is no fool if we think we can manipulate him by purposely rebelling against him and planning to repent later. Well, he might not give us the chance, might he? But laying it all that aside, our parable today shows the question, that's not fair, how is that fair? It's the wrong question. It's not fair. That's the whole point. Salvation is not a matter of justice. It's a matter of grace. The old woman on her deathbed does not deserve God's grace. Neither does a young woman who gives her life to Christ in high school and serves him faithfully for 70 years. Grace means getting what we don't deserve. And none of us deserves God's salvation. If we begrudge God's grace to a dying sinner, if we look at the thief on the cross who repented and went to paradise and complained, that's not fair, then we do not know God's grace ourselves. Because if we know God's grace in our lives, if we know that we are sinners and that God has rescued us entirely by His mercy through Jesus, we would never, ever look at anyone else and protest that they don't deserve God's grace. Because grace is never deserved. That's what makes it grace. Before we finished, let me go back to the subject of rewards, which is the main application point, I think, of the parable. The disciples given up a lot to follow Jesus, and he promised they'd be rewarded. He also wanted them to know that in the kingdom things would not always be as they expected. Because far outweighing the principle of rewards is the principle of grace. We are saved by God's grace alone when he does the impossible and brings us faith and salvation. And that salvation, the gift of eternal life, with all the blessings that we receive from God, packaged with it, that is far better than any reward. Because even if reward is a hundredfold, the, the grace we look forward to far outweighs it all. God is so generous, and we are so unworthy, that anything we do for God is tiny in comparison. Just think, think of a really big bungalow, Right? Like the ones in Tropicana or some parts of Ampanghile. I imagine you're a billionaire and you decide to give me one, free of charge. Thank you. I didn't do anything to earn it. But out of the kindness of your heart, you give it to me. And then I ask, are you going to compensate me for photocopying the documents? Now, amazingly, we've seen today that God will compensate us for the photocopying and the taxi fare and the postage a hundred times over. But he does not promise that the size of the bungalow is proportional to the amount of photocopying we had to do and how faithfully we've done it. He does not promise that we will get a better bungalow if we pay a higher taxi fare. He doesn't promise that the longer we've been working on the contract, the nicer the bungalow will be. God will reward us for what we've done for him. But grace is so much bigger that any rewards pale in comparison 
So the first will be last and the last will be first. See, knowing this, keep the disciples from pride. From looking around and saying, I'm going to be great in the kingdom. And friends, among us there is no room for pride either. We should not compare ourselves with each other. We should not try to guess who is greater in the kingdom. For the first will be last, and the last will be first. We are simply unworthy servants, yet wonderfully recipients of God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the kindness and grace that you've shown us, even though we don't deserve it. We thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us the faith to trust in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us a place with him in glory. And we thank you for your promise that you will reward those who serve you. Our Father, we pray that you will help us not to, not to compare ourselves with others, but to revel in the wonderful grace that you have shown to us. Help us to always be thankful to you for what you have given us in Christ. Help us to always stand amazed at your kindness to us. And help us never to begrudge your kindness to others. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.